Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. From the over the top studios at Scratch Labs in Boulder, Colorado, this is Michael Friedberg's Deep Fried Thoughts. And today, Michael is visiting with Chef Jeff Mahan. All right, Jeff, we are officially podcasting. This is incredible. This is incredible. Um, so, first things first, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into the chef game. Uh, uh, I think you had to be like initiated and jumped in at this point. Um, but when I started, uh, I never really liked cooking. I don't think when I was a kid, I, um, I liked when my dad cooked for me and really the only thing he did was cook scrambled eggs and like the best French toast that you put margarine and cinnamon sugar on a, on a piece of white bread and put it in a toaster (laughs) and luckily it didn't catch fire. Um, those are pretty much the staples of growing up in the Mayhem household. Um, but when I was a kid, I got kicked out of high school and I'd worked in some restaurants as summer jobs. Uh, and I was kicked out at the end of my freshman year. But I didn't really know what to do, and there was a lot of opportunity for someone who uh, only had about a freshman year of uh, high school under their belt. So I started working at restaurants, and there was this amazing thing that happened. There was sort of chaos and calamity that always happened, but yet it was structure, and everyone was kind of passionate about it at the same time. And it really rung true to me, and I think I've, I've held that, sort of love of a restaurant still to this day um, after, you know, 16, 17 years of being in the business where I love the chaos and the calamity, but yet this sort of defined structure of what it is and the rules. So what was it about the structure in a restaurant that worked for you as opposed to, I mean, I'm sure your high school liked to think that there was uh, plenty of structure in place there. <laughs> well, I- I think the structure sort of made to be broken. I think rules are, and I think uh, chefs are finally actually allowed to do that. You know, you're supposed to do a certain method uh, or salt, pasta, water, and then you defy it. You don't do it. It comes out differently. And it's, I think that's actually sometimes rewarded in the chef industry is to be defiant. Uh, but what I really liked is the teamwork. And I think, I don't know if you get a lot of teamwork at high school. Uh, I think it's pretty, it's pretty shallow. It's a sort of social net that people either slip through or get caught in. Um, but what I liked to, about a restaurant is it was a sort of collection of somewhat broken people, which it is still today, um, who came to work and really did their best to make the whole restaurant succeed. It was sort of like being on a sports team. Um, and I was never really athletic as a kid. Uh, I ski raced, but uh, it was sort of an individual sport, not unless a team sport. So I didn't have that team camaraderie. And I also really liked the idea of being creative and learning that you can sort of do something with food and make people happy. And I like being hospitable and as angry and as young as I was, I still like making people smile. And it's some one of my favorite things in a restaurant is to make a new dish or do something, open a restaurant, sort of watch the dining room and watch people having a good time. And 99.9% of them have no idea who I am. So I'm any guy wearing a t-shirt in the corner, huh. but sort of to see how many people you can make happy. And there's not a lot of jobs you can do that out there. Yeah, no, man, it's very cool to hear about the teamwork aspect of it. And so, um, you know, here you are, what, 14 years old working in a restaurant. How did you, I mean, it spoke to you and it's it's where you found kind of your calling, but then what were your next steps to becoming, you know, proper chef? Well, because I was 14 and I knew everything, um, <laughs> uh, I had no career path. Uh, I think... The biggest thing is I, I, I knew I liked restaurants and I didn't, I was so naive and I had no idea that you could, this is before celebrity TV and, you know, Instagram and stuff like that. You just worked at a restaurant. It was sort of blue collar work. I, I had no idea that there was a future in there. You could be a restaurant owner, 
was so young and naive and it's, it didn't really click. Um, so I didn't know about culinary school. I didn't know about all these other opportunities. So I just sort of worked at restaurants for the next few years uh, until I was like 16 and ended up going to culinary school after one of the cooks in the kitchen. I was like, hey man, like, you can do this for the rest of your life, like as a real profession. And I was blown away by that idea. I never actually thought about it. I thought you just sort of worked in a restaurant. And I didn't know there was, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, so I didn't know there was really fancy restaurants. You know, I worked at a Denny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, was, was, was and that was it, man. You know, and my first restaurant was like, there was like a little Italian bistro here and there. It's like dishwashing things illegally under the table. But like my first real job where I had to like sign papers with Denny. And I worked the graveyard shift, you know, so being another guy on a flat top, you know, from 10 to 8 a.m., it was, it was incredible. I saw these fond memories of it. Um, but I, I, I didn't, there was no looking down on it. It wasn't like, oh, Denny's is a bad, like, opening steaks out of a plastic bag and throwing them onto a flat top. Like, there was no, like, ego to that at all. It was just this pure joy of, like, playing grab ass and <laughs> listening to music and smoking cigarettes out front and drinking coffee and just being up all night, there was this, like, I don't know, this fun to it. And so I went to culinary school, and I really liked Japanese cuisine. I really, the Japanese culture has always sort of been a part of my family. My dad's an engineer, and you know, I grew up around a lot of Japanese arts and sort of philosophy. And uh, so, and we ate Japanese food quite often. And it's sort of my, like, my comfort food. I was going to go get, like, you know, some sushi or miso soup or something or Chinese food was also another comfort food. It was never a hamburger or a piece of meat. Mm-hmm. And so I was lucky enough to have a, uh, a teacher at culinary school to say, hey, would you like to go work at Nobu in New York? And I said, yes, moved to New York when I was 17. And I got my ass kicked for so many times. It was like a real learning experience of like, welcome to like, not Denny. Yeah. And I remember the first night, I was, they, they just threw me in. They're like, hey, this is Kobe beef. Don't fuck it up. It's, uh, you know, it's like $19 an ounce. And, you know, and sort of, I, I cleaned maybe three New Yorks in culinary school. I was like, great, this is going to be fun. Yeah. But I, I took the punches and I really set out on it. And, uh, I, again, I still at that point, I don't think I really liked cooking or loved cooking. I, I knew it was part of it. And I liked, you know, reading the books and learning it, but there wasn't this creativity. I was sort of a line cook of like, you learn and you do the same thing over and over again. And so you hone those skills, but this idea of creating was never there. Mm-hmm. And obviously we didn't have the option. I was, I, I wasn't good enough to be a creative person at that time. Uh, but it was still something that was always in the back of my mind. And at the same time, I was 17. Uh, New York was really changing with, you know, 9-11 and everything. And I was really sort of insecure that I only went to a high school, uh, freshman year of high school. So I ended up going back to California and applying for a junior college and getting into UC Berkeley uh, after a year of junior college. And um, had you worked in restaurants and catering. Had you finished culinary school at this point? Yes, sir. Yeah, so I I went to a year of culinary school when I was like 15 or a half to 16, and then moved to New York. I worked in New York uh, for a little under a year and then moved back to uh, California to go to junior college. Okay. And... At this point, I sort of, I, I've been used to working 14 hour days, six days a week. So the idea of going to school was just like a vacation. Yeah. You know, I sort of, I did some catering jobs and made some good money during catering. I, I took a full class load. Uh, and again, I, all these points in my life, and I hope to sort of, that's sort of always a goal in my life to become one of these, is I've had these amazing people in my life to kind of guide me and uh-huh. mentor me. And I don't know if it's because they're just naturally good people and I'm lucky enough to come across them or if I showed potential, or whatever it may have been. Um, so there's a professor at Diablo Valley College in uh, Northern California, a math professor, Julie, and she was unbelievable. Like, I, I wish I could connect back with it. And she was like, I think you can skip, you know, three years of math, and I'll teach you those. They're pretty easy. They're two weeks. Huh. So you're going to teach you geometry, like, like algebra and something else, and you'll go into calculus. Wow. And she spent a lot of time out of her day over the last three weeks being all you need to know is these two right there, this triangle and this right triangle and like, you know, what, you know, sine is and cosine is and like, and tangent is. And sort of like, she like really crash forced me through this and I ended up getting A's in, in math. And it's the first time in school I ever did well because in high school, I just did a lot of drugs and 
skateboarded and never showed up. Um, and so it was, I think when you start doing well at something, you want to continue to do well at it. I think there's a confidence to it. And I think I find that a lot in restaurants. It's an analogy we use all the time. You know, the first time you learn to tie your shoe is really difficult. And it was complicated. You didn't really know how to do it. And you had to sort of memorize a song, figure it out. Yeah. And, but now, after years of doing it, it becomes like just magic muscle memory. You could do it, text and drive, you don't even think about it. And I think, you know, there, you have to build a confidence to, once you do it the first time, you have a confidence that it can be done. And that confidence leads into that success. And I never had that with school in the first place. It's so when I started going to... It was interesting to hear you say that because I kind of had... Um you know, similar thing, learning disabled, not super happy in school. And then, you know, for me, the structure and everything came from athletics and, you know, I've done a lot of coaching and I still talk about the um, relationship where effort equals achievement. And I think that that's the sweet spot. That's where, um, you know, happiness and everything else lies. And it sounds like, sounds like you're kind of on that road. Oh yeah, man. I think I would be lucky to have someone like you in my life when I was that young. I think, I think people overlook the importance of coaches and that mm-hmm. I'm 33 and I have a coach. <laughs> you know? yeah. I think it's something to be able to have someone to be able to help you through things, whether they're emotional or physical or mental is it's something really special. Definitely. Uh, so to get you back you know, on track here, man. So we've done culinary school. We've done junior college. We've done Denny's. We've done Nobu. Uh, <laughs> I mean, at this point, are you, finding the creative joy and being a chef? Um, no. <laughs> no, we're still <laughs> not yet. No, oh, yeah, no, we're not yet, man. It's, 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 at this point, it's just fly by the seat of my pants. And I figured, you know, both my parents have PhDs. I should go to, you know, I, I apply to Berkeley. And, like, I should do something, obviously, cooking was in it, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so I'll tell you exactly where the pinpoint moment was. Okay. So go to Berkeley, get all, you know, and there i have some friends that got in there you know doing well living the college dream and what i'm finding out is you know i'm not good at it like i'm i'm fine at going to school and getting fine grades but you know the 14 year old kid in my math class is getting a 95 and the rest of us are getting 30 percent because he's good at it i got the difference and he just understood that and you know I started really assessing, and I'm, I've been pretty good throughout my entire life to be able to stop and actually talk to myself. And it gets in the skill set of mine that I think maybe be somewhat successful is to sort of be able to be honest with myself. And I started looking around. And I looked at all these really smart people and people who really worked hard to get to Berkeley because it's a good school. And here I was. I got kicked out of high school. I went to junior college. I somehow got into Berkeley and sure, through merit, but like, you know, whatever it may have been, like, but these people, like, wanted to be here. I just kind of, like, figured I should be here. And then, but I realized at this point that it was this epiphany that for the first time in my entire life, I knew something they didn't. All these one percenters, all these smart kids, I knew what I wanted to do. And that was being their extra. And I felt so good about that idea that I... I was sort of like, I was right in front of me the entire time. It's like love, this passion, this joy, this chaos, the, the working with food, the, the whole nine was there. And I never allowed myself to, to want to be successful in it. Mm-hmm. I just kind of took jobs where I could. And I, I always felt insecure that I wasn't following the same path everyone else was. And that was sort of the moment I really fell in love with cooking, and at least the idea of cooking and being a restaurant person is because I didn't allow myself to do it in the first place. Yeah. But once I was able to really think about, like, wait a minute, like, no, I, I, I can do this. This is something important. Uh, that's what it was. So I then took the next two weeks and applied to every single amazing place I could possibly apply. Um, I lived in Spain over a broad program. So I heard about this restaurant called the Tascaco in Spain. And... It was this crazy restaurant, had a big science program, uh, and did all this amazing food, and it was supposed to be one of the best restaurants in the world. And was so this I before there. Modernist, Cunis, uh, modernist Cuisine came out, or about the same time? Oh, yeah, this is way before. Way before, okay. This was in, like, 2005, 2006. Gotcha. And, lo and behold, 
Um, so the guy who wrote Modernist was even with Nathan, Chris Young, who was really the, the brains and the, the creator of it, was the guy who hired me. So he was in Napa giving some random talk, and I at this point dropped out of uh, you know Berkeley and uh, started for the sous chef at a restaurant, and I was there for maybe like three weeks, and so not long at all. And Chris was like, "Hey, can you meet me in San Francisco?" Sure. And he offered me a job at the Fat Duck as a stagiaire to start, and eventually a job afterwards in the, in the test kitchen. And he's like, "Can you move to England?" And yes. Like, absolutely. Why not? Right? And I was living in a co-op, you know, like, there's no elitist program to it. But they're very favorable, you know, good, pretty loving people. Yeah. And I went in and I talked to the chef and I was like, hey, man, like, I, I want to let you know about this opportunity that came my way. And that he was, his name is Adam. He was uh, an amazing guy. I still keep in contact with him, but he's like, do it. Like, don't worry about us. Like, that is an amazing opportunity. Which we understood and I packed up and again it's sort of that Nobu experience. I had no idea what three Michelin stars were, you know. Yeah. Or being on the top five list or like I showed up there and was like, Hey, what's up? you know, and I, I had no idea like how precise and how dedicated it was. And I gotta do something for a year that not a lot of chefs or like or anyone else does. I gotta actually think about food and this is where that creative came in. I worked in the science lab, I didn't work on the line. I worked with Chris and a guy named Kyle and Seven and Sam in this in this test kitchen where every day we just made the same thing over and over again. We had brainstorming sessions and I read books on hydrocolloids and figured out how to use a freeze dryer. I was able to do this thing I always wanted to do was to just create food and not dishes, but to understand what food did and to to really to really put my hands around why a lot of things that both my parents are engineers, so I drive people insane. I always ask the question, why? I want to know. Um, I'm curious. And so I was able to ask that question. I was rewarded to ask that question there. So I think at the time I was there, we made like two dishes, like two complete dishes, you know, in, but in we made day. thousands, you know, yeah, you know, but we, I made caramel 500 times, you know, just to see like how to make the best chewable caramel. And now I know I guess I have one of the best recipes for chewable caramel ever. And it totally breaks every way you're supposed to make caramel. Interesting. And so I, uh, I ended up leaving from there because um, my visa was long past expired. And there's good stories about coming back into the country. <laughs> uh, and uh I didn't know what to do, you know? And again, like, to sort of fly back the seat of the pants, I'm not really good at fighting too far in advance. Um, so I ended up moving to Chicago after a while and opening a restaurant called uh, El Suo with Alon Cora, who was a very notable chef. And that's and where so, I met my partners now. And so that's, because obviously now we're getting into the entrepreneurial side of you. Um, so you were actually a partner in the opening of this? No, no. I just, I came to open the restaurant, again, as the minion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and sort of you know, running pastries and things like that. Uh, uh, but nothing, no one important. But I met Rich Melman there, who is the founder of Let Us Chain You. And I didn't know who he was. I, I moved to Chicago and I lived on the floor of an apartment I couldn't afford, you know, for six months mm-hmm. uh, while eating microwave meals out of a, 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 a sizzle pan that I stole from work. I didn't have a microwave. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of fun life. But you know, I met this guy and he'd always wear fancy, like weird Nikes and he came in and he liked creative people and I would always make things like every day. We got to talking and, you know, I, uh, I really liked him. I, I didn't know why, but I had no idea he owned a hundred restaurants and sort of like amazing Willy Wonka of the restaurant industry. Yeah. And, uh, so I left L2O, uh, and he called me and I was supposed to go work at Alinea and, uh, he called me and said, hey, can you meet me at this restaurant? Sure. And we ended up having this amazing conversation for like three hours. You know, the biggest thing was like, what do you want to do? And I don't think that question gets asked a lot in restaurants. It was like, everyone kind of, I know what I want my line cook to do. And I kind of want them to be good and be a kitchen manager and then maybe be a sous chef. And then, But like asking what they want to do is actually really rare. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means not being there. Uh, and then 
being a good employer and helping them get to that goal because eventually what goes around comes around. They're going to do something great. Hopefully you helped you to get to that point. And uh, I ended up being a corporate chef for Lettuce Entertainment. And I, and I, what I didn't know how to do in a restaurant. I knew how to run a restaurant. I knew how to do, you know, inventories and walkers and scheduling and, and all those things. Um, and I knew how to cook, I thought, well at that time, uh, which turns out I didn't. Uh, but... I didn't know how to open a restaurant. I didn't know how to, like, from, from start to finish, open a restaurant. And over the course of the next few years, that's what I did for lettuce. I would create new dishes. What I thought I knew how to make was really not true. I had this learning experience in life, and I'll never forget that Rich asked me to make a cherry pie. You know, being from this fine dining world, I'm like, all right, I'm going to make this amazing cherry pie. I'm going to do this for the dough and I'm going to use this stabilizer for the cherries. I'm going to get these cherries and do something interesting and, you know, put them in a sous vide bag and, you know, infuse this flavor into it and just overcomplicated the fuck out of a cherry pie. Then. Yeah. Like I made it so bad and I thought I was going to make it great. And like, I, it was this complexity to everything I tried to do, whether it was pasta or something else. I always wanted to do something different because that's what you learn in fine dining is a sort of like, to keep pushing this boundary. And what Rich really taught me was this, like, simplicity is so much harder and so much more graceful than all this sort of loud noise. Uh, and I'm not saying that one's bad or better or worse, but one appeals more to me now. That, you know, the perfectly cooked chicken, you know, over the perfectly roasted vegetables with the perfectly mounted sauce, like, is so much more appealing than something that's levitating or you know, been pureed and reconstituted and done something different, you know, and sort of having fried chicken is really, you can have a thousand pieces of fried chicken, but how do you get to be the best one? Yeah. Uh, like yours, obviously. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and so I screwed up this cherry pie so much, and, and he's like, I'm going to show you how to make cherry pie. And, you know, he brings me to this restaurant. You know, it just I, I watched this super simple process of these guys sitting cherries, putting them in sugar, <laughs> rolling up high dough like there was zero complication to it and I ate it it was amazing yeah. it was sort of like idiots like you know and I don't know I, I sort of learned that you know I think when you're young and this goes across life in general when you're young you're really greedy you're greedy with your time you're greedy with your experiences you want 10 pairs of pants you want all these cool things you want a thousand friends you want 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 you know, and I think the same thing goes with being a line cook or owner. I wanted experience. I wanted to know stuff. I wanted to be better than everyone. I wanted to be the best. You know, and I think as I started getting older and mature, like more mature, like I realized that we're cooking less for me and it was more of cooking for other people, which made me happy. And, you know, finding really good products that people took a lot of time to make really good, mm-hmm. whether they're vegetables or pieces of meat or, you know, plateware. And finding passionate people to do those things is utilizing them and being able to highlight what they did. And so when I cook a piece of fish or a piece of meat, instead of trying to hide it and do weird things, not weird, weird is such a negative word, but like different things. Yeah. Like to me now, all I want to do is highlight this amazing piece of meat that I found. And I don't want to change it because I took so much time to find this great piece of meat or vegetable or grain or whatever it may be. And so I uh, work with lettuce going back. I'm sort of pressing a bit this, remember the ADHD thing we both had. Uh, and so I opened restaurants. I did a bunch of stuff. And Laurent left after the previous one starts. And myself and my, you know, my business partner, Francis Brennan, were asked by Rich to take it over again. And we both sort of knew the menu and knew how to work the restaurants. We both worked there. And he was the chef's cuisine when it opened up. And we worked there, and instantly I became an asshole again. Like, I was this jovial, nice guy, but I go into fine dining, and I wanted a fancy jacket, and I had a $2,000 fancy chef knife, and I was just a dickhead. Like, yelling and screaming, and everything had to be perfect, and everything had to be this. And I wasn't motivating. I wasn't promoting people. I was putting them down through fear and intimidation. And, you know, and people were all about it. It was just part of the culture. Hmm. And... It wasn't really good for me, and there was this time where I, I you know, grabbed a kid's chest coat, 
screamed at him and quit after moving here from Los Angeles. And, like, and then, like, I, I sort of thought to myself, like, man, this guy just moved across country for, you know, for a job that I'm paying him, like, $23,000 a year for. And he didn't have any caviar, so, like, I embarrassed him in front of 30 other people. Like, and now he's not here. Like, why, why, why would I ever do that? Like, sort of like, I realized I just didn't, I didn't love fine dining. It wasn't Denny. It wasn't why I started. It wasn't fun. It wasn't, you know, shenanigans. And I kind of like had this, again, this another self moment where I went to Rich and I said, hey, Rich, like, I, I don't want to do fine dining anymore. Like, I really want to open up a small pizzeria. His first question was, do you know how to make pizza? I said, no. <laughs> you know, he's like, okay, do you think you can make a good pizza? I'm like, I think I can. So for the next, you know, few months, like, I, I worked at L2O, and I was nicer and more jovial, but they had an amazing bread oven in the back, and I just started working with different recipes and working on pizza. I found what is now my dough, and, you know, and so instead of using a wood... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Fired up and making me a pause and stop. He's like, I didn't have any rules, man. I just used a bread oven because that's what I knew how to do. I knew how to make bread. I knew how to use a bread oven. So that's why we use bread ovens for all of our pizzas. That's uh, really cool. And it kind of broke the mold a little bit. And so I kind of vowed to myself secretly that once I open up Stella, uh, at the time it was called Stella Rosa, now it's called Stella Barra because there's a wine company that doesn't like them. Uh, uh, but, uh, once we open them, I'm like, I'm not going to wear a chef coat anymore. I'm going to wear a t-shirt or like a dishwasher shirt. Like, no more fancy knives. Like, put them all away in retirement. Like, we're just going to make real food. We're going to listen to 90s hip-hop and rock. And, like, it's going to be loud. I'm actually sitting at the original restaurant as we speak. And it's 90 seats, including the bar. You know, there's 13 tables. Like, it's a small little place. And when we opened, something happened. And we became very, very popular very fast you know all the things i try to get away from the press and all the other stuff they start happening in the first year i think we got you know best pizza in the country from food and wine best kale dish in the country i zagat 30 under 30 i was forbes 30 under 30 and all these accolades started happening and all we were doing is making pizza you know with a bunch of guys who had no idea how to make pizza beforehand either you know, it was sort of this amazing time in my life to where it was, like, fun. You know, it was one restaurant, make whatever you wanted to make. The menu changed every day. We'd go to the farmer's market, and it was this really exciting time. And, you know, I opened my second restaurant in Hollywood, and it was also successful. And, you know, what I found then is that I was really spread thin, and I was trying to go back and forth, and I was trying to really micromanage everything, and that's sort of this next evolution. Like I had the epiphany of being a cook that now I need to be a leader and, you know, less of a chef and more of a restaurateur chef. Mm-hmm. And to take all the people that have made me successful in my life and just promote them all. And so I took everyone around me and I just gave them new job titles and everyone who started as dishwashers and then were lead line cooks became sous chefs and just sort of grew the entire team. And what I learned by that is all these people believed and drank this sort of Kool-Aid and they ran the restaurant so much better than I could ever do by having, you know, two days here, three days here that they took so much ownership in the restaurant because 
they believed in it too. Yeah. And that was a really special feeling, you know, and that was something that was, I've never felt before sort of seeing other people being able to execute your dream because it's their dream too. It's cool. It's and, like what, uh, you, I really, what you just kind of described is, uh, you know, going from athlete to coach. And so I want to change the conversation a little bit here and kind of move into, um, athletics. Cause, uh, you know, the way you and I met was um, on the bike, and I know that that's a big passion of yours. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into cycling and how cycling fits into your life? We're not going to mention the JJ thing before, or <laughs> we're going to go right to cycling. I mean, uh, well, we did. We matched there and on Christian Mingle, so. Yeah, you, you had to cast a large net, though, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so uh, with opening all the restaurants and everything, I was uh, – uh, it was pretty spread, uh, spread thin. I wasn't really that healthy. Uh, I was smoking cigarettes every day, like at least a pack a day. Um, and, you know, it was really not doing too good. Uh, I was drinking probably more than I should. And, you know, I kind of realized that, you know, Rich always says, you know, if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of other people. And, I wasn't doing a really good job of taking care of myself. I was trying to figure out things. I needed to have fun. I didn't have any friends. All I did was work. Um, I literally was in LA for two years, and I think I knew like three people. And because all I do is go to work, and on my days off, I just work. And, um, I kind of wanted to like you know, be a person again. And so I got a, I realized I really liked biking growing up. You know, um, I couldn't skateboard anymore because I would be pretty fucked up and break a wrist or an ankle. And, you know, but so I was like, all right, I'll buy a road bike. It would be fun. Like, I kind of road bike a little bit. I had, like, a track bike living in New York. And, mm-hmm. You know, I could get out and explore L.A. And what I found with cycling is that, like, I'm an addict. And a recovering addict of that. I'm sober now. But being an addict, if I like something, I don't just like it. I kind of keep hitting the hammer to the nail until the hammer is through the other side of the room. Uh <laughs> And so what I found with cycling is that I really liked it. And it kind of spoke to me, this, like, freedom of flying. And I've always liked to go fast, you know, like going fast in cars and this sort of fast phase of the kitchen, you know, fast on skis, um, which we've actually never talked about. We did talk about. Um, but, the you know, the idea of going fast and sort of this freedom of escaping a little bit was really nice. And I was really lucky and I met, like three or four cyclists who were very dug in deep in the Southern California uh, cycling community or Cat Ones or Ultros or, you know, uh, Masters. And uh, they took me under their wing and were like, all right, we're going to teach you not to be an idiot on the bike. First thing you do is you escape your leg. Uh, and so I had this crash course yet again in life to uh, – you can see a trend here, not yeah. planning and having crash courses. Um, a crash course is how to cycle. And, I, man, I loved it. Everything about it, everything, the, the, the ritual, the culture, it was like learning. It was like being in a restaurant for the first time again. Is how that long ago was chaos. this, Jeff? When did you, when did you kind of start? But, uh, three years ago. Three years ago. Wow. Yeah. So, um, I mean, so three years ago, you're smoking a pack a day. Um, you kind of get plugged into some of these guys, maybe start hitting some group rides and, and, uh, I mean, you just, like you said, it's sort of the, the addict and you took over and it was a, it was a healthy addiction and you just kept going. And a competitive it. one. I wanted to beat other people. I'm competitive in the restaurant as happy go lucky as I am. Like, I don't like failing. No one fucking does. You know, like yeah. I love having good numbers. I love being, if a pizzeria opened down the street, I wish them the best, but Hey man, like. <laughs> I'm going to be number one, right? Yeah. So, and, and, and so in cycling, you haven't, I mean, you do a lot of grand fondos and stuff, and there's a lot of kind of chefs um, to compete with in the cycling, but uh, is there a specific reason why you haven't um, pinned numbers and kind of gotten more into the race side of things? Um, yes and no. Like, I think half of me wants to, like, so much. Like, I, I love race riding, and I love fast group rides. I like going to the front. Like, everything about that I like. The other half of me, which is sort of the more logical point, mm-hmm. 
is that all those people that made me successful, I had a commitment to them. Yeah. You know, in all those 10 restaurants. And I, you know, every day, regardless of I'm working or not, they're working probably harder than me at this point to make me successful. Right. Whether there's washing dishes, scrubbing floors, working on the line, doing orders. I mean, they do all the stuff to make the restaurants busy. And so my job is to make them successful and to be their guiding light. Yeah. You know, knowing my behavior. I mean, part of what I'm kind of hearing is that, you know, you're so full on when you do anything that if you let yourself take that step, I mean, it'd be, you know. It'd be done. I mean, every Saturday is a race. And I have a coach right now. I like training. I like being better. Mm -hmm. But. It's less about, and the time commitment is definitely one of them. Um, and obviously, there's a team aspect where, you know, I like being on a team. And, you know, all those things are super appealing. But, you know, I also know so many friends have raced and broken their back and leg and shoulder, you know, gotten hurt. And, you know, I'm not that smart. I, I work with my hands. I need my body, you know. And... It's one of those things that I, there's no there's no disillusionment of like I'm never going to be a professional rider. I do it for fun, and while I like racing and going fast, like sort of those things are a, a big thought process to where it's less about me and more about if I break my collarbone, like how helpful am I to everyone in my town and restaurant? Yeah, you know, or if I'm out for you know two months because of something, happens to bid, like whatever it might be, like. They're always in the background in my mind with like, a lot of decisions I make throughout my life. So when I cleaned up and got sober, they, like, everyone in my restaurants were a big motivation to get healthier. It was too. Like, you know, all these people I care about, like family, because you know, every I'm around them every day. So as it comes to racing, sure, there's some race rides that I you know, do. And, you know, I'm sure that there'll be some races that I will do. But having that much of a commitment to something, when I already know my really are it's sort of i know my boundaries on it yeah um so let's uh switch gears yet again and uh talk a little bit about chef cycle oh boy um my butter salad <laughs> so chef cycles probably the problem with chef cycle is that they, they, to quantify what it's able to do in words is nearly impossible. And I think you just experienced this in Blackberry Farms um, on a small level, but definitely the feeling was there. A few years ago, some chefs from New York, uh, Jason and Alan and a few other people decided they wanted to ride bikes from New York, uh, New York to D.C. and raise money for a charity called Share Our Strength and No Kid Hungry, which a lot of chefs work for. It's an amazing organization that helps uh, provide meal programs and summer uh, meal programs for schools uh, for kids in schools, and the idea is that one in five kids go hungry uh, every day in this country, and that it's a total solvable problem. There's so much food in this country that goes to waste, you know, or gets thrown away that we have all the abilities to fix this problem. It's just getting the ability to do so um, is the, the complicated part. So a lot of chefs are really behind this because it involves food. It involves our future and kids and educational programs with food. It really speaks to a lot of us, um, and we're all children at the heart. And I think Chris Constantino really quantified it well during the Blackberry Farms race. He said, you know the feeling when you're you know, done with a 100-mile ride, and you're starving, and you're kind of delirious, and you're not really focused, and you're just hungry. Well, that's the feeling all these kids have going to school every day. But you're an adult, and you can fix that where they can't. And that's what they have to deal with every day. And that, to me, is really motivating. Um, so after the first year of that, they wanted to do sort of a bigger event of it. And I knew Jason through some events, and he was such a good guy. I met with Debbie, and, you know, being at this point, I sort of knew a lot about cycling and had some connections in the industry. Kind of helped plan the routes and get some sponsors involved and get some people in the bike industry involved. And it, was this kind of like beta one first year where 30 people on the East coast and, you know, we kind of all met and had these little banners at chef cycle and it was a smaller deal and we left from Shake Shack and we just sort of rode it. It was like a 30 person group ride that was strung out over 17 miles. 
And we didn't really know what to do or what kind of rest stops. I think like Adele or I think, you know, Debbie and the team would like go to like Whole Foods and buy like coconut water. So that's what I thought was healthy. And, you know, put it in the back of a van. Like there was no real organization to it. Then we did it in California and, you know, it was again, really new, but we raised a few hundred thousand dollars. Yep. And when we found out, through it was and, and just for everyone really listening each one of those dollars uh provides 10 meals for kids in need so it's pretty powerful it's yeah it's, it's an extremely i don't think i don't think i ever think about how powerful that dollar is you know i think it's easy to say one dollar feeds 10 kids but to actually think about what that really means and how many dollars we spend a day on stupid things in our lives you know like I don't know, buying coffee in the morning feeds 20 kids. Yeah. You know, that's pretty, pretty impressive to think about, you know, and how much really, you know, the power, the, the weight of a dollar doesn't go that far in most of your life, but in this situation it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, going back to chef cycle, what we found out was like, all these chefs, like, you're not just helping kids at this point, but now you're actually helping the people who, you asked throughout the year for, you know, you're helping chefs get healthier. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these chefs had never ridden before, let alone 300 miles. Like Billy Shore, who is, let's say in his 60s, Billy, um, got plastic pedals on a road bike and rode in his sneakers for 300 miles. And he's never really ridden a bike before. Yeah. And this accomplishment that everyone felt at the end of it was just like brother in arms and sister in arms, like, no, it was a summer camp. No one wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. Everyone was like so amazingly, like felt so successful at the end of it. Not only did they help kids, they accomplished this goal of 300 miles. It's fun. They're going to turn up their cell phones and have fun again. Yeah. And it was really special. And so last year, we had a huge jump from 60 riders to 120. Mm-hmm. And we did one ride and a little more organized, a little more sponsorship, a little more SAG. And Giant has been such a huge partner in this since day one. Um, they have done everything from SAG to ride to get vehicles, to help with tubing and mechanics. And, you know, there's a one woman, a uh, doctor named Deborah Pear, who, who closed her shire or her practice down for five days, which takes money out of her pocket. She got all the chiropractors and massage therapists she knew, and she came along the ride. They worked from like six in the morning to like midnight every day. And if you've ever given someone a massage, like it's so much effort. And, you know, they just did one after another, another to make sure these riders were taken care of. And so this sense of community, just like the chef world has, and just sort of like cycling world has, they come together of everyone's making sure they all are successful. Everyone is making sure everyone can make it up the hill and, you know, it's funny at chef events when everyone's wearing, you know, the chef coats or, you know, whatever it may be. There's a sort of like, like group mentality where like you hang out with your chef friends that you know, and there's other chef groups, and it's like, but when you put everyone in spandex, they put bikes, like no one really knows who each other are. Yeah. And so everyone just becomes friends. And so, you know, it's it's funny people who probably wouldn't become friends or you know, cycle next to or like hang out next to each other and now cycle next to each other because why not? They're there. Yeah, no, it's an amazing thing. And we saw that in Blackberry farm. I mean, we were rubbing elbows with billionaires who, uh, you know, if we showed up in our office with a cheap suit, it just wouldn't have been the same dynamic. No. And I think there's something special that happens on a bike, you know, just like within a restaurant that if you're, you're going up a hill in pain, like you somehow open up to people. I've, uh, I've had this amazing, uh, you know, connection with strangers on a bicycle that I just met who now become best friends, Yeah. you know, and I, I, every single one of my friends ride bikes and like most of some of our chefs, some professional cyclists, like it's just one of those things that like, there's this weird connection between bicycles and chefs. And I think chef cycle is somehow caught lightning in a bottle. I think this year we're going to raise $2 million, if not more, we're going to have seven or eight pros ride with us. It's going to be really special. And I think, you know, someone like you who came in this, you know, small little bit of it, who is now instantly a leading part of it, 
you know, it's an it's an addiction just like the bicycle or sport is helping people, right? Mm. Well, it's just such Knowing amazing, that you're doing something good. It's an amazing encapsulation of, of really everything that we value. And, uh, yeah, I mean, lightning in a bottle is probably the best description. Um, so to wrap things up, I've got the kind of four standard questions that I ask all of my guests. And uh, the first question is, what's the best um, advice you've been given as an athlete? Um, huh, a lot of advice. Uh, I think <laughs> Adam is listening, the best advice. You know Adam's going to listen. Rest. Yeah. <laughs> rest, because I'm not good at it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think I'm really good at going 110% for so long until where I end up crashing and going zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like with the restaurants and everything else, I think knowing when to rest will make you stronger, uh, even though may, you may not think it at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's true. That's actually when your body... Um you know, is able to repair itself and make those gains. And you kind of just answered it, but uh, the second question is, what's the best advice you could give an athlete? So maybe um, aim this at somebody like yourself who's time poor. Um, I think the best advice, I mean, it goes back to the advice that I've given to God myself, the best advice to me. You still have to have fun with it. Mm-hmm. I, I think getting better at something is always harder. And I think, you know, from a coaching aspect, you can maybe chime in more on this, but it works in restaurants. And we sort of talk about with the shoe tying thing is that the idea is to stress your body and keep stressing it until that stress becomes adaptation and that becomes easier. Mm-hmm. And I think, but if you lose the enjoyment factor, it just becomes work. And I think that's when you hit your glass ceiling. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, being an athlete, you have to be really passionate and you have to be extremely selfish uh, in a good way, just selfish of your time and regimen. Yeah. But if you lose the love of it, just like with cooking, that's when you burn it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, at the ski academy, we take kids in the fifth grade and, you know, if someone's on the fence, the, the thing I always go to is, you know, if you don't love it, you'll never work hard enough to be good at it. So I think that's, I think that's great advice. Um, question number three is, what is the best advice you've been given as a businessman? Uh, Rich, I don't know. You got to take care of yourself before you can take care of other people. I think that one's a good one. Um, another good one that I haven't said is, you know, I think don't celebrate the highs and don't mourn the lows. I think that's something I think about a lot. Is I try not to get caught up on too many of the successes I had because – I also try not to get caught up on too many of the failures that I've had. I've had plenty more failures than I've had successes. Um, I think as long as I'm confident in the direction I'm going and the confidence around the people I have around me, um, I sometimes, sometimes put blinders on. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think stay your course is really the, if you believe in it and you're passionate about it, things time to grow. Businesses take time to grow. Uh, and I think, you know, being a manager compared to an owner, and you can definitely relate to this, is I think being a manager is like being a babysitter, you know, is that you kind of care if the kid falls down and, you know, whatever, if the kid's 10 minutes late to sleep. It's, you know, like, <laughs> you're, you're caring, but it's like there's some loopholes to it. Yeah. But being a parent, especially a new parent, like a restaurant's like a baby, you know, mm-hmm. and you can be an overbearing parent, and that will cause the restaurant to rebel against you, man. You know, you could also be a naive parent and a negligent parent. That also, it's sort of, you really have to love it. Yeah, agreed. And so the fourth and final question is, what's the best uh, business advice you could give to someone listening to this podcast? Don't get into the restaurant business. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's just for those like a subcontext. Um. <laughs> I think the best, the best advice I can even get into any business is, you know, be open-minded. Is that it's good to have an idea, but there's plenty of other people with better ideas. You know, those ideas can come from anywhere. You know, and from any any place and any position in the business. And you know, your business is nothing without your employees. And 
you know, they really make the business. And the better you treat the people you do business with, the better you treat the people that work for you and work with you. Uh, you know, you're just around. Like, that's how you're successful at business. Yeah. You know, all businesses to take care of people. Mm-hmm. And most people are afraid to be in business for themselves, so they really want them to know that someone's going to make sure that they're not going to get screwed over in 20 years. Yeah. I think there's a safety to that. And they also want to move up, you know. And, you know, I think one of my favorite things about business today is that I get to make sure people are happy. And it's a really hard job, but at the same time, like, helping my managers out with things and I've gotten all my managers bikes now and they like to ride and they're getting healthier and better. And like, it's those things that make you feel successful unless it's the bottom line after a while. Yeah. It's being able to look at your team and just be so proud of everyone that that's the real success at the end of the day. It's less about the money after a while. It's, it's more about who you surround yourself with. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like that's a big thing to you. Um, you know, is that sense of camaraderie and sense of team. Um, all right, Jeff, we'll, we'll wrap this up, but I want um, you to tell everyone uh, where they can find out more about you, your restaurants, and Chef Cycle. Oh, man. Um, so I have restaurants in Santa Monica and Los Angeles, Chicago, and D.C. Uh, pizzerias are called Stella Barra Pizzeria. Uh, M Street Kitchen in Santa Monica, Summer House Santa Monica in Chicago, and DC and two awesome donut stores called Do Right Donuts in the heart of Chicago. Uh, if you want to know about more about Chef Cycle, which is way more fascinating than me, because um, there's like 200 chefs involved, it's chefcycle.org. Um, you can go and you can donate to individual riders, preferably myself, Mr. Michael right here, obviously. Uh, but if there's other people you like, we won't get too jealous. Um, and you can go and read every writer's bio and every chef's bio, or you can do a, a donation. Read really about how the dollar works. Um, and root us on in uh, 2017. All right, Jeff. Well, thanks so much for your time. And uh, I hope everyone enjoys um, hearing a little bit more about you and your story. Oh, man. Michael, I can't wait to hear myself because <laughs> I hate doing that. Yeah. Oh. All right, buddy. All right, man. Thank we'll you very soon. much. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.